for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at TNTradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to your Global News Hour. On today's show, more details emerging to Biden corruption as an impeachment vote draws closer. Three new studies show more COVID vaccine damage. Dr. Paul Oosterhaus explains details of New Zealand's whistleblower Barry Young's discovery about COVID vaccine carnage as officials look to hide the data and claim they know the vaccine has not caused excess mortality. And avian flu has broken out in Belgium as the WHO tries to assure people it likely will not transfer to humans. But first today, Israel has ordered Palestinians to evacuate several more areas as it widens its bombardment of the Gaza Strip, killing hundreds more people. The Israeli military declared on Monday via the social media site X that it was a defining safe areas for Gaza civilians to minimise harms to them. However, hundreds more Palestinians have been killed since the onslaught resumed on Friday, and it is unclear where civilians might seek safety. Al Jazeera journalists are reporting on the ground that it is difficult to heed the orders in real time, with nowhere safe remaining in the enclave. Israel published a map on Friday dividing Gaza into evacuation zones and asking people to follow their announcements for their safety. However, the maps, which include 2,500 grids, have confused many, while unreliable internet and electricity make keeping updated a challenge. On Monday, an update with the arrows pointing south was issued. The instruction came the day after the Israeli military said it had expanded its ground operation to all of Gaza, targeting Hamas centres in all of the enclave. The renewed bombardment follows the end on Friday of the seven-day pause in the fighting between Israeli forces and Hamas, which allowed an exchange of about 105 Israelis and foreign hostages, and held by Hamas, there was about 240 Palestinian prisoners that were released as well, with more than 15,500 people having been killed, according to Gaza's Ministry of Health, in nearly two months of warfare that broke out after the Hamas cross-border raid back on October 7, in which 1,200 Israelis were killed and 240 taken hostage, with intense air raids overnight killing more than 100 Palestinians, according to Hamas authorities. That raises the death toll in Gaza since Saturday to more than 800. Israel has also stepped up attacks in the city of Khan Yunus in the south, which was previously designated as a safe area, leading thousands of displaced Palestinians to flee the city. This comes as hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have fled their homes and have been displaced, said Al Jazeera's Hamdar Salhut, reporting from occupied East Jerusalem. Meanwhile, White House spokesperson Matthew Miller has encouraged Israel to prevent civilian deaths while acknowledging its inevitability. Unfortunately, we do expect to see civilian casualties as a result of this campaign. Um, that is sadly true in all wars. It is especially tr going to be true in a war in a crowded urban environment where the opponent, Hamas, is using civilians as human shields and hiding themselves, hiding their fighters, hiding their infrastructure behind civilians. So what we have made clear to Israel is that we expect them to comply with international humanitarian law and do them do everything they can to minimize civilian harm so we don't see a repeat in the south of what we saw in the north. Uh, and, and with respect to that, we're at the very early stage of the operation. And I think it's too, too soon to draw a definitive conclusion. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has laid out the allegations against Victor Manuel Rocha, who has been arrested and charged with spying for Cuba for over 40 years. 
He was a one-time member of the White House's National Security Council, now accused of using his positions within government to support Cuba's clandestine intelligence-gathering mission against the United States. The charges against the 73-year-old retired diplomat expose one of the highest-reaching and longest-lasting infiltrations of the United States government by a foreign agent, Garland said in a statement. Rocha, a naturalised US citizen originally from Colombia, allegedly began aiding Havana as a covert agent of Cuba's General Directorate of Intelligence, DGI, in 1981, and his espionage activities continued to the present. The statement said, Garland delivered remarks about the arrest of Rocha on Friday in Miami and elaborated on details learned when Rocha spoke at length with someone he believed to be a Cuban operative, but who was in fact an undercover FBI agent. As detailed in the complaint, Rocha repeatedly referred to the United States as the enemy and spoke of his own meticulous efforts to infiltrate Washington's power centre and influence American foreign policy. Garland added, he repeatedly bragged about the significance of his efforts, saying that what has been done has strengthened the revolution immensely. Rocha served on the National Security Council from 1994 to 1995 in the administration of Bill Clinton and was the ambassador to Bolivia from 2000 to 2002 under both Clinton and George W. Bush. He also served as advisor to the US military command responsible for Cuba. He admitted traveling to Havana in 2016 or 2017 to meet with his DGI handlers and asked the undercover agent to send my warmest regards to the direction referring to the DGI. And on Friday, in a voluntary interview with State Department security agents, Rocha lied repeatedly, including denying meeting the undercover agent and was subsequently arrested. Those who have the privilege of serving in the government of the United States are given an enormous amount of trust by the public we serve, Garland said. Boy, oh boy, that statement's going to come back and bite some people. Now, the Philippine army has launched a large-scale manhunt for the assailants who bombed a Christian gathering in the south, killing four people. ISIL said it carried out the attack during Sunday mass at a university in the city of Marawi in Mindanao in the region has been fighting in recent, seen fighting in recent years between the military and armed groups links to ISIL. With more, here is part of Barnaby Lowe's investigation for Al Jazeera. A quiet Sunday meant for worship turns into commotion. A bomb rips through a Catholic gathering in the southern Philippine city of Marawi, killing several people and injuring dozens more. Senior security officials here have promised to bring the perpetrators to justice. They say they've launched an operation to search for persons of interest, but won't divulge much else. ISIL has claimed responsibility for the bombing of a gymnasium in Marawi City. Now, President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. blames what he calls foreign terrorists. But security officials say they're still looking into all possible angles. They've zeroed in on fighters who they think may be retaliating against recent offensives that resulted in the killing of their leaders and have suspected ties with ISIL. We cannot really uh, say for sure whether uh, these are foreigners coming to the Philippines and uh, doing the, that attack, or whether these are affiliated groups to uh, foreign uh, terrorist groups, no? or even foreign directed. The government has deployed additional troops to Marawi and the rest of the southern region, but has assured the public that there is no imminent threat. 
Saudi Arabia's energy minister has slammed the door shut on agreeing to phase out fossil fuels at the United Nations COP28 climate talks, setting the stage for difficult negotiations in Dubai. A tentative phase down out was included in a first draft of an agreement on climate action. The delegates are haggling over during talks that are scheduled to finish on the 12th of December. But Energy Minister Prince Abul Aziz bin Salman, a half-brother of de facto ruler Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, told Bloomberg that Saudi Arabia, the world's biggest oil exporter, would not agree. Absolutely not, he said in an interview in Riyadh. And I assure you, not a single person, I'm talking about governments, believes in that. About 200 countries must come to a consensus decision at the meeting in Dubai, held at the end of the hottest year on record. In an interview with AFP last week, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres called for a total phase-out of fossil fuels, warning complete disaster awaits mankind on its current trajectory. But Prince Abdulaziz said, I would like to put that challenge for all of those who comes out publicly saying we have to phase out I'll give you their name and number, call them and ask them how they are going to do that. If they believe that this is the highest moral ground issue, fantastic. Let them do that themselves and we will see how much they can deliver. And at least four people were killed and two officers injured in a mass stabbing Sunday at a home in New York City. According to reports, the New York Post reported five were dead and ABC noted at least four. A girl called 9-11 shortly after 5am to report that her cousin, a 38-year-old called Courtney Gordon, was armed with a knife and allegedly killing family members. Gordon set fire to furniture in the living room before exiting the house, according to the report, which prevented police from making an immediate entry. The deceased included an 11-year-old girl and a 12-year-old boy. With more, we joined the New York PD press conference with Chief Jeff Madgery. But this morning, at about 5.10 a.m., in the far Rockaway section of Queens, in the 101 precinct, uh, members from the 101 precinct received a 9-11 call of assault in progress, where basically a young female caller stated that her cousin is killing her family members. Two of our members from the 101 precinct, a 28-year veteran, a 16-year veteran, and a marked vehicle doing patrol, responded to the, lo the location. So our officers, they pull up to the driveway. As they get to the driveway, they see a male walking out. He's carrying luggage. Our officers ask the male a, a question or two, an encounter that lasted about 10 seconds where the male draws a knife on our officers. He stabs one officer in the neck, chest area. He strikes the second officer in, in the head. A uh, 28-year veteran is able to draw his firearm. He's able to discharge his weapon to stop the assault, and he was able to stop the, the perpetrator. Uh, our two officers were removed to a local hospital, Jamaica Hospital. Our perpetrator was removed to a local hospital, and he's since been pronounced uh, dead on arrival. Tourist has died shortly after completing the world's highest bungee jump in China. The 56-year-old Japanese tourist was taken to Condi S. Januario Hospital in Macau after plunging off the Macau Tower on Sunday afternoon. Officials said he experienced shortness of breath and lost consciousness shortly after the 233-metre jump at 4.30pm. Paramedics arriving on the scene said he was not breathing and had no heartbeat. Local media reports that the man had no external injuries to his body as a result of the jump. 
He died shortly after he was rushed to hospital. Tourists pay approximately $538 to jump off the tower, which was built in 1998 and was modelled off Auckland's Sky Tower. And a known sex offender who was labelled a danger to the community by the judge who sentenced him has allegedly indecently assaulted a woman in a South Australian hotel just weeks after being released from immigration detention by the High Court of Australia's contentious landmark NZYQ decision. With two former detainees arrested over the weekend, the coalition seized on the incidents as a catastrophic failure, accusing Labor of failing to keep the community safe and escalated its calls for Anthony Albanese to sack his Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill and Immigration Minister Andrew Giles. Now, barely three weeks ago, Ali Yawa Yawari was standing outside a modest motel in Perth's eastern fringe, smiling for the camera as he celebrated his sudden newfound freedom. When asked about what he had done to warrant being thrown into immigration detention indefinitely, he was equivocal. He would only say that there had been some issues to do with fighting. The fighting that Yawari had described was, in fact, multiple attacks on indecent and indecent assaults on several elderly women in South Australia. His offending was so severe that in 2016, District Court Judge Paul Cuthbertson described him as a danger to the Australian community. Yawari was found to have had attacked three women in the space of 14 months in and around Bordertown in South Australia, where he was working at a local abattoir. All three cases had similarities. In the first, he punched his victim repeatedly in the face before having sex with her. He was convicted of assault, but acquitted of rape at trial, ultimately receiving a suspended sentence. Two months later, according to the Adelaide Advertiser, Yuari attacked a 64-year-old woman in a home, indecently assaulting her, then hitting her in the neck with a walking stick. His third offence again involved an incident with a lone elderly woman and had sexual overtones, and in both those matters, Yuari smashed windows and kicked doors during the attack. It prompted Justice Cuthbertson to sentence him to three years and 11 months in prison, and in the six years since serving his term, Yuari had been in immigration detention, awaiting a deportation that never came. Since his sudden release as part of the first wave of detainees freed following the High Court's landmark decision last month, Yuari has moved from one modest motel to another. Most recently, he was staying at a three-star motel in Adelaide's north. There it appears Yuari allegedly committed the same offence that Judge Cuthbertson had feared would be repeated all those years ago, and which Anthony Albanese would have feared since the High Court decision caught out his government. Meanwhile, the government is rushing to get its new detainee laws in place before the Christmas break as tensions are high and the COVID hive-mindedness has now been replaced with targeted attacks and heavy criticism. With more, here is part of Sydney's Channel 10's reporting. Pedophiles, rapists, murderers and a contract killer. And with the time to legislate this year running out, the government is in a rush to ram through laws to lock some of the 148 people released back up. A bill to further restrict them went through the House last week and is now before the Senate, but the government is going to amend its own legislation to add preventative detention. It applies to non-citizens who've committed a serious violent or sexual offence here or overseas that carry a punishment of at least seven years jail. Under the proposal, the Immigration Minister can ask the Supreme Court in a state or territory to decide whether the offender poses an unacceptable risk. And if yes, they'll go to jail, not immigration detention, for up to three years. We've seen a complete circus from the government in relation to 
uh, national security. The coalition voted against the bill in the House of Representatives, but it had been pushing for preventative detention, which will now be in the bill for the Senate vote. If there are amendments that we can make to try and improve a piece of legislation, uh, then we'll do that constructively. The Greens also oppose the proposed law and are unmoved. And it is a future crimes legislation where you will find yourself at least potentially imprisoned just because of something you might do in the future. Uh, the Greens are not going to be part of this race to the bottom. After the break, the denials of Joe Biden's surrounding his family's influence peddling business are wearing thin as further evidence emerges. This is Compass on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Chris Smith. Despite being used to protect travellers from terrorists, hijackers or violent drunks or those who were drugged out as they board, and this has been going on since 1961, they won't be around this Thanksgiving. None of them. Air marshals were always meant to be invisible. Well, you can guarantee that this Thanksgiving. Ironically, the Biden administration has been hijacking air marshals for all kinds of other duties, leaving the passengers they were meant to guard and protect completely helpless. Air marshals have been lumbered with assisting the chaos on the southern border. They might be called air marshals, but an unknown number are now seconded to work on the ground. Maybe they're ground marshals now, marshalling illegal immigrants on the border and doing the job supposedly meant for the United States Customs and Border Protection. Where are they? Chris Smith on TNT Radio. Radio works because of its ability to personalise to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. This this is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. President Joe Biden received payments from one of his son's businesses, according to bank records, made public on December the 4th. Biden received the payments starting in September of 2018, according to the records which were obtained and released by the U.S. House of Representatives Oversight Committee. The records show Biden, who was at the time the former vice president, signing to receive $1,380 on a monthly basis from a Wasco PC, one of Hunter Biden's businesses. The records also show that at least one payment was made. An aide for the House Oversight Committee said that the panel has evidence showing at least three monthly payments were made. The records were obtained through subpoenas for the personal and business bank accounts for both Joe Biden and James Biden, the president's brother. With more, here is James Comer explaining the details in this Biden investigation update. President Joe Biden claimed there was an absolute wall between his official government duties and his family's influence peddling schemes. This was a lie. President Joe Biden claimed his family didn't receive money from China. This was a lie. President Joe Biden claimed he never spoke to his son, Hunter Biden, about the Biden's family's shady business dealings. This was a lie. Now, Hunter Biden's legal team and the White House's media allies claim Hunter's corporate entities never made payments directly to Joe Biden. We can officially add this latest talking point to the list of lies. Today, the House Oversight Committee is releasing subpoenaed bank records that show Hunter Biden's business entity, a Wasco PC, made direct monthly payments to Joe Biden. This wasn't a payment from Hunter Biden's personal account but an account for his corporation that received payments from China and other shady corners of the world. At this moment, 
Hunter Biden is under an investigation by the Department of Justice for using a Wasco PC for tax evasion and other serious crimes. And based on whistleblower testimony, we know the Justice Department made a concerted effort to prevent investigators from asking questions about Joe Biden. I wonder why. The more we learn, it appears the Justice Department was trying to cover up for the Bidens until brave IRS whistleblowers came forward and a federal judge rejected the sweetheart plea deal. Payments from Hunter's business entity to Joe Biden are now part of a pattern revealing Joe Biden knew about, participated in, and benefited from his family's influence peddling schemes. When Joe Biden was vice president, he spoke by phone, attended dinners, and had coffee with his son's foreign business associates. He allowed his son to catch a ride on Air Force Two at least a dozen times to sell the Biden brand around the world. Hunter Biden requested office keys to be made for his office mate, Joe Biden, in space he planned to share with a Chinese energy company. We've revealed how Joe Biden received checks from his family that were funded by the Biden's influence peddling schemes with China, no less. The House Oversight Committee continues to investigate Joe Biden's involvement in his family's domestic and international business schemes at a rapid pace. We will continue to uncover the facts and provide transparency about the findings of our investigation. President Biden and his family must be held accountable for this blatant corruption. The American people expect no less. MMA superstar Conor McGregor has hinted in a post on X that he might run for President of Ireland. Potential competition if I run, he said. Jerry Adams, 75, Bertie Ahern, 72, Ender Kenny, 72, each with unbreakable ties to their individual parties' politics. Regardless of what the public outside of their parties feel, these parties govern themselves versus govern the people or me, 35 years old, young, active, passionate, fresh skin in the game. I listen, I support, I adapt, I have no affiliation, bias, favouritism toward any party that would genuinely be held to account regarding the current sway of public feeling. I'd even put it all to vote. There'd be votes every week to make sure I can fund. It would not be me in power as president, people of Ireland. It would be me and you. The current president is Michael Higgins, who has been has held that role for 12 years. The current prime minister is 44-year-old Leo Vadaradkar since 2022. And Switzerland has estimated 7.7 .7 billion Swiss francs, approximately 8.8 .8 billion US dollars of Russian assets frozen in its financial institutions. The national agency overseeing sanctions announced last week. While the figure is a provisional estimate and may be subject to change, it represents an increase on the 7.5 billion francs the Swiss authorities said they blocked last year. The current estimate includes properties and luxury cars belonging to sanctioned Russians, as well as profits from cash deposits, bonds and shares. According to estimates by the Swiss Bankers Association, foreign assets make up only a small part of funds held by Russians in the country. Recent estimates show that overall holdings amount to some 150 billion francs. Despite not being an EU member and considering itself a neutral state, Switzerland supported the West's Ukraine-related sanctions against Russia. The Swiss government said on Monday more than on more than one occasion that it was closely following EU discussions on the prospect 
of seizing frozen Russian assets to aid Ukraine, but has not yet voiced plans to do so. Swiss bankers have previously warned to, that the measure would risk breaking national laws would jeopardise its image as a global financial centre. Russia has repeatedly called the freezing of its assets unlawful. Last week, I reported on this show that Switzerland imported more than 14 tonnes of gold from Russia last month for processing, taking advantage of the fact that it was shipped through third countries and thus did not violate Western sanctions. The latest data from the Swiss Federal Council actually revealed that. And another day, another major Australian corporation is having a digital meltdown. This time, Westpac, one of the country's big four banks, went offline overnight, making customers unable to access their accounts or conduct transactions. Others reported that their accounts disappeared or had zero balances. Here is part of the reporting on Sydney's Channel 9. There's plenty of frustration and anger this morning. This was an outage that impacted online and mobile banking services starting early yesterday and going all the way till this morning. Westpac has apologised to its millions of customers, many who were affected by this outage. But this morning, many customers are taking to social media to vent their anger and frustration. One user here saying, while I'm glad it's been restored, I have to say, what is it with Australian companies and systems melting down during a software update? Not good enough. Another saying, we, will we be getting an actual explanation of the cause at all? I hope there's a post-incident review that you'll be able to share with your customers. This was the apology that Westpac shared a little earlier this morning, saying our mobile and online banking services are now restored and running as usual. We want to apologise to all our customers who were impacted by the issue overnight. We recognise this took too long to resolve and we thank customers for their patience. Sylvia, it's understood this was all due to a routine technology upgrade. Meanwhile, the continued challenges for major corporations has been used by the Australian government to push ahead with its promised digital ID as a form of convenience to keep one's entire identity and documents in one place. But because it's the government, everything will be just dandy. What could possibly go wrong? And coming up after the break, more mid-air pilot incapacity and an MIT professor red pills his students about vaccine dangers. This is Compass on TNT Radio. Now's a good time to break the big news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. After levelling much of northern Gaza, Israel has started bombing southern parts of the besieged territory, despite previously ordering Palestinians to head there for their own safety. Just days after it was revealed America had supplied Israel with bunker buster bombs, footage has emerged of one being dropped on a residential building in Gaza. And as wars rage in Ukraine and Gaza and tensions stir in the South China Sea, North Korea's warned a military confrontation with South Korea is now only a matter of time. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda, it never stops. For the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations, vote one. TNT Radio. Free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. Welcome back. An outbreak of the highly contagious H5N1 avian influenza has been reported on a poultry farm in the northwestern part of Belgium, according to the World Organization for Animal Health. In a Monday statement quoted by Reuters, the Paris-based organization said that the outbreak was detected in the city of Dishmoud near France 
and that at least 95 birds died of the infection while the rest of the flock, consisting of 20,000 birds, had been culled. Previously, German authorities also reported on Friday that 11,500 turkeys had to be slaughtered after an outbreak of the highly pathogenic virus was detected at a farm in the eastern state of Brandenburg. And in the Netherlands, outbreaks have been detected at a laying hen farm, prompting the culling of approximately 110,000 chickens and at a petting zoo where some 90 birds that posed a risk of spreading the virus were slaughtered. In recent years, the H5N1 avian influenza has led to the culling of hundreds of millions of birds worldwide. In Europe, outbreaks typically occur in autumn and winter. And this season has also already seen cases detected on farms in Italy, Croatia and Hungary, in addition to those previously mentioned. And in a July report, the World Health Organization noted that since December of 2021, only eight cases of humans contracting the H5N1 virus have been reported. These infections were attributed to close contact with infected birds and contaminated environments. And Steve Batar is an engineering professor from MIT. In this presentation conducted by Steve Kirsch, Batar takes the microphone to relay his experiences, thoughts, and red pill moment in a room filled with students about the vaccine. Every day, more and more people are finally working out that there is much more to a vaccine that is made in record time using experimental technology to a man-made disease of which no one in authority is remotely interested in finding out the hows and whys, except perhaps for new authority in waiting. Let's play that clip for you now. My name is Steve Bittar. I'm an electrical and computer engineer. I've been teaching at Worcester Polytechnic Institute for over 22 years. My red pill moment was when I had a young man sitting in my office asking for special accommodations because he instantly had a heart attack to the Pfizer booster and then was being treated for myocarditis. So that was my red pill moment, and that's when I did the deep dive in the same data that you showed, the adverse event reporting system, and I saw all the increases and reports on the COVID vaccine. I was wondering why isn't the CDC seeing the red flags if I can see them, and I'm not even trained for that. By January of 2022, just a few months later, WPI had on record seven student deaths, which they attributed to suicide, except that I knew one of those young men. His, his name was Tyler Larson from Pelham, New Hampshire. He was on crew team. He was found dead in his dorm room, and it wasn't a suicide. So I know those vaccines are harmful, especially to that cohort, and I'm standing here today because I care about these young people, and I know the vaccine's harmful to them. I've been trying to get the word out. Doing, I, I, um, I am one that can appreciate the graphs. Uh, so thank you for all that work. Um, I guess my question to you is, I do believe this has been a deliberate attempt by our government and maybe the governments of the world to harm people. So, and it, it's dangerous. We're living in a time where I just cannot believe what our government is doing. Dr. William Makus is one doctor come citizen journalist who has been documenting pilot incapacity since the vaccine rollout. He shared the work of Dr. Kevin Stillwagon, who reported on a situation last week where the first officer who was the flying pilot on American Airlines Flight 755 from Paris to Philadelphia on November 29th had a seizure that stiffened his legs and back, jamming his feet under the rudder pedals on the short final approach. The captain immediately took over flying duties and there was no loss of aircraft control. The relief pilot who was required to be on the flight deck during landing was able to remove the unconscious pilot from the seat with the help of the purser. The relief pilot occupied the seat for a normal landing and taxi 
to the gate. Long international flights are the safest right now due to extra pilots required to be on the flight deck during critical phases of the uh, flight that include the takeoff, initial climb, final descent and landing. The extra pilot requirement does not currently exist for domestic flights and short international flights. However, having that extra layer of safety will not matter if this scenario happens again with involuntary flight control inputs. No number of pilots on the flight deck will be able to respond in time. Here's the scenario as the doctor describes the rudder pedals are connected to each other. The captain has two rudder pedals and so does the first officer. They are connected to each other by cables and when either pedal is pushed, the corresponding pedal for the other pilot moves as well. On short final approach like this flight was in that the time, if the first officer has a tonic spasm that shoved one of the rudders fully forward with his leg fully extended, the captain might not be able to overcome that control input. This would put the aircraft in a violent role that would not be recoverable. Seizures in pilots is a huge deal, specifically because of possible involuntary flight control inputs. If the pilot had even one seizure in his or her past that was of an unknown cause, there must be a four-year recovery period with no seizures, and the last two years must be without anticonvulsant medications. If a seizure, or if a pilot rather, has more than one seizure in his or her past, it is diagnosed as epilepsy. This requires 10 years of no seizures and the last three years without anticonvulsant medications. After these recovery periods, extensive neurological examinations, including imaging, of the brain are required. Here is part of the radio call to alert the pilot emergency. Clear land, two seven right, uh, seven fifty five heavy. We got a medical emergency on board. American seven fifty five heavy, Roger. When you're able, give me the information. American seven fifty five heavy, turn right at the high speed left kilo Romeo spot number six. Contact the ramp, and uh, we've let them know. Left turn, Romeo kilo. We need EMTs at the gate. Roger. Any information that you have uh, that, that you can give us, uh, we'll pass it along. Appreciate it, thanks. We had a uh, pilot that had a seizure. A pilot that had a seizure? Yes. Uh, we're getting 755. Juliet to the gate, Alpha 23. Juliet to the gate. 755, um, Brown, tell me you got a medical. Have you let anybody over here know yet? Yeah, we have. Can we do spot 5? You want spot five, 6? And we're to the gate off a of spot uh, over here coming on Tango, Juliet. All right. Can you, um, like I said, 55, can you call Ops and tell them about your medical? I don't think nobody over here knows, so we can call the paramedics. That's all right, ATC knows as well. They're uh, informing them as well. All right, copy that. But yeah, just so we can call out, so we can call the paramedics with the information, just to make sure that you have your medical people over there. Now, as you saw on the screen there, this was not an isolated incident, nor even in the last month alone. As Dr. Stillwagon writes, we know seizures after these shots happen. More than 6,000 have been reported in VAERS. I don't know if the pilot who had the seizure on this flight had a COVID shot or not, but I want to give you possible reasons of how an mRNA shot can result in seizures. Seizures like these are an indication that something has gone wrong in the brain tissue. It can be inflammation, a tumour, a vascular problem, or even autoimmunity. And after the break, three new studies show more COVID vaccine side effects. This is Compass on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. These are parlous times for liberty in the United States and for the Constitution and the rule of law. House Republicans have joined with their Democrat colleagues to oust Republican Representative George Santos, only the sixth member to ever be removed from the lower legislative chamber. 
Three were removed in 1861 after they joined the Confederacy, and the other two following their convictions of the crimes of which they were accused. Santos has been accused of fraud crimes but not convicted. This is a premature, preemptive strike by Republicans on one of their own, and it sets a dangerous precedent. Now, I hold no grief for George Santos. He seems, quite frankly, like a wingnut. But it's up to the constituents of his district to remove him from office, absent a criminal conviction. This is just one more episode in the long history of Republicans bowing to Democrat will. It seems as though when Democrats win elections, they get their own way. And when Republicans win elections, Democrats still get their own way. This is why we're so upset with the Republican Party. Grow a pair, stand up, and say no to the other side. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Right now, the forgotten poor are waiting for healing and care, for life-saving medical care, for a chance to live with dignity and hope. They are waiting for Mercy Ships and you. Mercy Ships is the largest floating civilian hospital in the world with volunteer medical staff and crew who donate their time to save lives. And now, as our newest state-of-the-art hospital ship sets sail, Mercy Ships will double our ability to reach children and adults who need us now. Without the work of Mercy Ships, these patients don't have another option. Mercy Ships is answering the call to serve suffering people who have nowhere else to turn. Together, we are going to some of the world's most desperate places and bringing a wave of hope and healing to those who need it most. Thank you! Thank you! <laughs> to learn more about this wave of hope, go to mercyships.org today. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. TNT. Welcome back. People who received a COVID-19 vaccine were more likely to suffer a range of conditions, including a lack of blood cells being produced and ear disease, according to new studies. Researchers in South Korea analysed data from the Korean National Health Insurance Service to examine whether vaccinated or unvaccinated people had experienced high rates of dozens of adverse events, including menstrual disorder, ear disease and aplastic anemia. They found that vaccination increased the risk of many of the adverse events or health conditions. In one study, for instance, they found the incident rates of 13 immune-related non-fatal adverse events were higher among the vaccinated. The non-fatal problems included menstrual disorder, bruising, tinnitus, inner ear disease, middle ear disease and other ear disease. The researchers looked at records from people aged 20 years and up. People were counted as vaccinated if they received their second dose or completed a primary series before September 30 of 2021. People were counted as unvaccinated if they received no doses. People were excluded if they received one dose or had any of the conditions already. The vaccinated group included 1.4 million people compared to 289,000 in the unvaccinated group. The latter skewed younger with fewer comorbidities, one factor that potentially affected the results. Researchers measured cumulative incidence rates of the adverse events, which were picked because the doctors felt that non-fatal immune-related problems after COVID-19 vaccination have yet to be comprehensively elucidated. The rates were measured by examining diagnoses among the two cohorts. Three months after vaccination, the cumulative incidence per 10,000 was higher for all but one of the problems 
of visual impairment in the vaccinated group. The problems included glaucoma, vision loss, warts, herpes zoster, alopecia, which causes hair loss. Some previous studies have found links between vaccination and some of the issues. The researchers said the study findings suggest that doctors should observe patients after administering a shot. The findings of this study suggest that clinicians should maintain close observation of a range of non-fatal events after vaccination, given that these manifestations might emerge post-vaccine, they said. The paper was published ahead of peer review. And in another study that also examined records from the Korea National Health Insurance Service and was released ahead of peer review, Dr Chun and other researchers found that the vaccinated were more likely to suffer blood disorders and other hematologic abnormalities including a plastic anemia, a rare condition that sees a person's body unable to produce enough new blood cells. The analysed data show that the nutritional anemia, aplastic anemia and coagulation defects increased after COVID-19 vaccination, the researchers wrote. A third preprint paper from the researchers outlined the results of examining the incidence of inflammatory musculoskeletal disorders among the vaccinated and unvaccinated. The researchers found that a range of conditions, including plantar fasciitis, bursitis, and Achilles tendonitis were among higher in the vaccinated, regardless of which vaccine the people received. Individuals who received COVID-19 vaccines, either mRNA, viral vector, or mixing and 277 matching, were found to be more likely to be diagnosed with inflammatory musculoskeletal 278 disorders compared to those who did not, the researchers said. Dr Chun and the other researchers reported no conflicts of interest and no funding. The COVID-19 vaccines have a number of confirmed side effects, including myocarditis, a form of heart inflammation. The inflammatory conditions recorded at higher rates among the vaccinated may stem from the spike protein in the shots, the South Korean researchers said, while the ear diseases could be caused by the immune response to the spike protein. And the fallout from the arrest of New Zealand whistleblower Barry Young continues with him making bail today from his one charge. Dr Paul Oosterhouse spoke last night on Cafe Lockdown's show alongside suspended paramedic John Larter. In this clip, Oosterhouse explains how he examined the data to confirm what Young had uncovered. Oosterhouse travelled to New Zealand on Liz Gunn's invitation. I flew out to New Zealand and... Um, I met up with Liz Gunn and, and with Winston Smith, who we now know is uh, also known as Barry Young. And uh, I, sp I spent a few days uh, uh, with a very small team uh, looking at the data and thinking, well, how are we going to, how are we going to get this out to the world? Pay per dose. It meant pay per dose system, but he made it really clear that um, he was he was the administrator. He had built this database for the New Zealand government. Um, he wasn't taking anything. He, he, he was the administrator of it, and he had built it. And it was all about payment, payment of providers. So they had to validate this. They had to know who was vaccinated, when they were vaccinated. But it had incredible levels of data. You know, you uh, you could it knew when, not just who and when, but right down to when the needle went in the arm, when the needle went out of the arm, and and it had been merged with the New Zealand government death data, so you could see the date of death if there was one, and that's what he did. And he was looking at the data, and he's going, he, he knew what a safe 
what 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 the safe uh, record looked like, and you could just see these incredible, you know, and, and what you could see with these situations where people came in on on a Tuesday morning between ten and two, and 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 they were being uh, they were being given this jab, and then. Uh, you, you look at the deceased column and you'd see deceased, 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 deceased. So, you know, one after the other, vaccinated with the same product on the same day in the same place and, 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 and just carnage, you know. And, yes, a lot of them were elderly. And, and, and some of these worst clusters were, were related to um, these so-called outreach uh, vaccination services. They were among the worst. But the bottom line is, this was high level, high record, uh, record level data that that you could see just the carnage, you know, and he looked at it and he thought, there's no way this is safe. I have to get this information out to the world. Meanwhile, the deputy leader of Liz Gunn's political party, Logan Courtney, has made an appeal to people around the world as the party plans to finance Barry Young's legal defence. Hello to the people of New Zealand and the world. My name is Logan Courtney, and before 2pm yesterday, I was the deputy leader of a political party in New Zealand called NZ Loyal. Our leader, Liz Gunn, who is also a trained journalist, released a piece where a whistleblower and herself discussed a highly controversial issue. As a result, our leader has had to go into hiding because the police have arrested and charged the whistleblower for allegedly, allegedly misusing and disclosing vaccination data while spreading misinformation about COVID-19. The health department, which filed the charges, has entered an injunction so that the data cannot be disclosed to the public. First, I ask all political parties in New Zealand to do the right thing. This is your first test as the leaders of New Zealand. I ask the Governor-General to perform the duty that you were elected for. And for the political parties around the world, I ask that you hold New Zealand to account for these actions. I ask all media around the world to bring to light this injustice. You could email Christopher Luxon, David Seymour and Winston Peters, who are our leaders, directly to intervene. New Zealand Loyal has engaged our lawyer to represent the whistleblower. This is a watershed moment and I invite everyone from the left and the right, please meet us in the middle to defend all of our right to free speech. This is a pillar of our democracy. May God defend New Zealand during this time. Meanwhile, the US Department of Defence has changed the number of post-vaccination heart inflammation cases it identified, the latest in a series of moves it has made to minimise side effects from the COVID-19 vaccines. Ashish Vazirani, the Acting Undersecretary of Defence, the personnel and readiness said in a newly disclosed document that just 80 to 90 cases of myocarditis and or pericarditis 
were identified following COVID-19 vaccination in members. The lowered number is the latest move in a pattern of the military downplaying side effects from the vaccines, which were mandated for members in 2021, even though data at the time showed the protection from them was waning. In a report sent to Rep Mike Rogers from Alabama, about two weeks prior, the military said there were 326 cases of myocarditis, 351 cases of pericarditis in its members, as well as 353 cases of acute myocardial infarction or heart attacks. Those numbers came from the Defence Medical Surveillance System and data from the Theatre Medical Data Store, two databases for healthcare records for members. Several hundred heart attacks were also recorded in members after COVID-19 vaccination. Meanwhile, RFK Jr. explained in an interview late last month to Children's Health Defence how exactly the Department of Defence got mixed up in bioweapons production using legal loopholes to continue the process. The Patriot Act had a passage in it that effectively relaunched a bioweapons arms race. The Patriot Act said we're not revoking the Geneva Protocol or the Bioweapons Treaty, but we are saying that any federal official who participates in bioweapons research cannot be prosecuted under those treaties. So it, 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 it launched this new bioweapons arms race. Initially, the, the Pentagon was was reluctant to do it openly because, you know, experimenting with bioweapons was a hanging offense in, under Geneva. So they, uh, so they sent the research over to Anthony Fauci's shop to NIAID, which became the, the official. Who, who sent it over to NIAID? <laughs> the Pentagon did. The Pentagon did. Yeah, the Pentagon sent it over there. And NIAID under Anthony Fauci became the official biodefense agency of the United States government. But how does bioweapons research go into a health agency? Because bioweapons research is, is always done coterminously with vaccine research. Every offensive bioweapon program requires a vaccine. So vaccines are actually part of offensive bioweapons. You cannot... Unlike chemical weapons, with bioweapons, there's always blowback 100% of the time, which means if you infect your enemy, your troops are also going to get infected. And so you cannot launch a bioweapon unless you first have the antidote and you've inoculated all of your um, group with the antidote, with you know your side, your civilians, and your soldiers with the antidote, and then you can release it. So anytime you develop a bioweapon, you have to develop a vaccine, and, and vaccine research was legal under the Bioweapons Treaty, um, but, uh, but, but bioweapons research was not, but they were the same thing. If you developed a, uh, a vaccine, the way that you would develop a vaccine was by saying, well, we're going to make a, uh, we're going to take a wild virus and we're going to make it more pathogenic, more virulent, more deadly. And then we're going to develop a vaccine for that. Uh, and that was, that's classic gain-of-function research. Why are they doing that? You know, why, what is the rationale for them doing that? The only real rationale, if you think about it, is to develop bioweapons and then develop a defense to those bioweapons. So that's what they were doing. And Anthony Fauci was given a 68% raise by the military because of these new military responsibilities. 
Really shocking allegations there. Kennedy then explained how this gain of function continued until three separate bugs escaped with calls from hundreds of scientists to stop this activity, lest a pandemic be created. Fauci would continue on regardless. He continued to do that to 2014. And that year, three of the bugs escaped in high profile escapes from three different labs in the United States, really deadly bugs escaped or were found in unsafe circumstances. And, um, and 300 scientists sent a letter to President Obama asking him to shut down Anthony Fauci's research on gain of function, saying that it was highly likely that he would start a global pandemic with this kind of very dangerous research. And President Obama uh, issued a moratorium and shut down 18 of the worst projects by Anthony Fauci, or ordered them shut. In the end, he really didn't shut them. He instead moved the research offshore, where he would be out of the oversight of these troublesome scientists, the 300 scientists, a group that called itself the Cambridge Working Group, and of the um, and of White House officials and the major lab offshore that they moved this research. There were other ones too. They moved research to Ukraine, uh, to the former Soviet state of Georgia. Uh, but the, some of the worst research they moved to a Chinese lab that was run by the Chinese military, the Wuhan lab in, in, you know, in Wuhan, the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, China. So many questions being answered by Kennedy's continual work there. Now, in a recent development, the Gateway Pundit, one of the top conservative websites in the US today, has reported that its access has been blocked on networks in within both the US House of Representatives and the Pentagon. On Thursday, sources from Capitol Hill informed the Gateway Pundit that attempts to access their website from the House network were unsuccessful. A staff member from Congressman Paul Gosar's office detailed ongoing access problems for the past two weeks. He said, I wanted to notify you that I have been unable to access the Gateway Pundit on the House network for the past two weeks, according to an email, with investigations now taking place. And a work by Renaissance artist Sandro Botticelli, thought to have been lost for 50 years, has been found in the southern Italian town of Grignano. Local Mayor Nello D'Oria announced last week the painting, which depicts the Virgin Mary and infant Christ, is believed to be among the last by the master and is valued at around 100 million euro. According to CNN, the Botticelli had been kept in the Santa Maria del Grazi Chapel since the early 1900s after the church it was originally given to what was destroyed by fire. After an earthquake damaged the chapel in 1982, the parish gave the canvas to a local family for safekeeping with the official decree on file, the outlet said, citing a spokesman for the Italian Ministry of Culture. For the first few years, local authorities monitored the condition of the canvas and helped the family move and clean it until the checks stopped. The piece was listed on the Ministry of Culture's inventory of missing works, according to CNN. While that list was being updated, traces of the painting were seen this summer. Commander Massimiliano Croci said during the presentation of the find. He noted that the family will retain ownership of the work, but it will be kept in a museum. The canvas requires significant restoration as the painting shows detachments of the pictorial film 
colour fails, abrasions and chromatic alterations due to repainting and the oxidation of superimposed protective paints. The family kept the canvas for decades to protect it from the hands of art traffickers, claiming they knew nothing about it, Il Matino reported. Botticelli died in 1510, and the recently discovered Madonna and Child is believed to date from the late 15th century during the final stages of his career. And with that, there is hope that I will one day find my missing glasses as we conclude today's edition. Coming up next is Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and watching Compass with Jason Olborn here for TNT Radio.